Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. This week, Tracy and I have been down in Florida visiting my parents, and while we were there, we were inundated with news of Dorian, of this gigantic hurricane that has been traipsing its way across the Caribbean, the Atlantic, the outer lying islands that are there, and watched people scurry and hurry to get ready and prepare as gas stations ran out of gas and generators flew off the shelves and people were just preparing themselves over and over and over and over and over and over for this thing. Well, some of you have met Adrian. Adrian is a part of our community, and Adrian is from the Bahamas. His parents actually live there right now, and they're from Nassau, so they're a little bit south of the hurricane. But as we prepare for this morning, as we begin this homily, I wanted to take just a moment to pause and pray for Adrian's family, his cousins that still live there, his parents that are there and the preparations that they are making because it is a massive undertaking to get ready. And this sucker has grown in intensity even further than originally predicted. So it's now a cat five, so it's really big. And the devastation as it slows its progress across the islands is going to be absolutely tremendous. So if we could, let's just pause for a moment and pray for Adrian's family and for the people of the Bahamas and all of those that will be in the path of this superstorm. God, thank you for gathering us here today as a community and as a people this Labor Day weekend, as there are people who are scurrying about on this Labor Day weekend to prepare and are already underneath the torrents and the wind and the waves and the battering rain of this storm in the Bahamas. Father, we pray for your protection. We pray for safety. We pray that they would have all of the preparations in hand that are there and that those preparations were sufficient. Not just now, not just as the wind and the waves and the rain come down, but also as the floodwaters begin to rise. That they would be safe and that they will have evacuated to the higher ground that was necessary. Father, for Adrian's family specifically, we ask for your protection. Thank, we thank you that they are further south uh, from the storm, even though they're still in the Bahamas. Father, we pray that you would protect them in the midst of this, that whatever is necessary, the storm surges that will come and the, the rain and the winds and the waves, Father, that you would keep them safe, keep them protected in a way that allows them the space and the place to actually care for and take care of others in your name while they are there on that island. That they would be a massive outreach to the people around them, to their neighbors, to their community. Uh, that they would show the love of Jesus through your provision in this space and your protection. So Father, we lift them up and all of those that will be in the path of this massive storm as it continues to trek its way towards the eastern coast of Florida and Georgia and North Carolina. Father, for Taylor, as she's in North Carolina this weekend, I pray that she can get out easily and quickly and safely uh, without too much difficulty and make her way back to Seattle. So, Father, we lift all of this up to you, and it's in your son's precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. One of my favorite books 
that I got to read last year was this book by Naomi Alderman called The Power. It's a fantastic nonfiction or fiction book. I still struggle between what's fiction and nonfiction anymore. My library science days were really poor. However, this book is absolutely a fantastic question on what is power. And not only that, but it's like this post-apocalyptic question about power in such a way that it asks and it wrestles and it wonders, what would happen if the roles were reversed? What would happen if the gender roles in power were reversed in our society? If there was something that happened evolutionarily or in a power dynamic or something was discovered in a way that all of a sudden women had an upper hand on men. And not just any upper hand, but one that could actually had more power and more, more tangible use than, say, military might or weaponry, but that women had this power within them that allowed them to stand up over men. And all of a sudden, they were then in charge of the world. They ascended into all of the, the, the places of power as presidents of countries, as, as leaders of, org, of companies and organizations, and all of a sudden there's just a massive flipping of the power structure of society. This is the question that, that, that Naomi Alderman is asking in this, is what would happen in the world if gender roles were reversed? Her conclusion, her conclusion was that nothing would really change, that women would actually wield power in the exact same way as men do, to control people and to push people down, that there would actually be no change whatsoever. She, kind of her thesis is gender is a shell game. What is a man? Whatever a woman isn't. What is a woman? Whatever a man is not, tap on it and it's hollow. Look under the shells. It's not there. Her grand thesis in this whole thing is kind of a basic play on Lord Acton's famous dictum at the turn of the 19th and 20th century that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that would be different if women held all of the power than if men did. Because the problem isn't gender. The problem is actually power. Power is the problem. In his book, Playing God, Andy Crouch says this. He says, power, at its worst, is the unmaker of humanity. Breeding inhumanity in the hearts of those who wield power, denying and denouncing the humanity of the ones who suffer under power. That power is this thing that actually begins to dehumanize the other. That the way in which we wield our power, the way in which we hold power, no matter how big or how small the power that we have is, that we wield it and that we use it in such a way that it dehumanizes other people, all in an effort 
to maintain or even gather more power for ourselves. And we all want it, don't we? I mean, we all want power. We all want a little bit more power than we have right now. Even just a modicum, even just a, a tiny little ounce, we want just a little bit more power than we have right now in this very moment. I remember as a kid, I was playing a lot with this wonderful TV show called He-Man. Remember this show? Oh, man. And right here in this moment, as he's grabbing the sword, what's he saying? I have the power. He wanted more power. He didn't have enough. Because what he would do is as this kind of Clark Kent sort of character making his way through the land, la, 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 in this very peasant-ish sort of like medieval time, whenever evil would strike, whenever Skeletor, oh yes, Skeletor, whenever Skeletor would make his way on the scene with his evil prowess, He-Man needed more power in order to restore order back to the world. He needed it, and he wanted more of it because of what he knew he could do with it. And so he would pull out his sword, and he would say, by the power of Grayskull. And then all of a sudden, he would transform into this dude, right, with his, like, helmet hair, right? That's a helmet. That's not hair. And then he'd say, I have the power. And then he had this unbelievable strength, this unbelievable power in which he could control the world around him and make a difference because he had the power. We all want power. We all want just a little more power than we have right now. Now, a really good synonym for the word power is actually control. That what power does is it allows you to control the world around you. It allows you to control people and relationships and things and ideas. Power is control. And we all want just a little bit more control. And I know that you might be thinking, I don't think you're right. I don't think I want any more control. I, I don't think I really want any more power in anything. But you do at work. If my boss would do it this way, things would be better. If I were boss, if I were in charge of this team, if I were in charge of this group, I would do it this way. That's a cry and a call and a desire for power, for control. Or in school, if I were teaching this class, this is how I would teach it. These are the textbooks that I would assign. These are the assignments that I would put out because this one right here that I'm going through right now is the most pointless thing I've ever done in my life. And don't tell me you never said that in any class you ever took because it was there. This desire for control, this desire for power. Or perhaps entertainment. This is how I would have rewritten the ending to Game of Thrones. <laughs> right? We all 
and power. We all desire that type of control, no matter how big or how small. It's why there were 23 people running for president in the Democratic Party which now has shrunk, thank goodness, right? But why there were 23 people, because it was like, I could do this better. I have a better idea than the person that is in charge. I have a better idea than the other 22 people that are in my party that have thrown their hat into the ring. And there are hundreds of thousands of other people in this country that still say, I could do it better, but they're not going to throw their hat in the ring. Because we desire the power. We desire the control. Growing up, for me, it was always as I sat in church. I saw it the most in church. I was like, I could preach a better sermon. I would teach it this way. I would cut that out. That is so garbage. That is awful. It's kind of what you were taught in Bible college. You had to do anyways. And so you would sit there and listen to other people and be like, that guy's a hack. So I know that that's what you're thinking. That's okay. And that brings us to this moment at the very end of the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. What's really funny as we come to the end of our entire series on the Lord's Prayer, as we come to the very end, this verse, this phrase is really only found in the King James Version. If you were to open up your Bible right now and look in the NIV, this phrase is not there. It just is not there at all. In fact, it's not in hardly any of the translations with the exception of the King James Version of the Bible. And the reason why is because it's only in about half of the manuscripts that are out there. It's not in every single manuscript. About the earliest occurrence of this that they can find in any manuscript is actually the Didache which is like this kind of book of the apostles' teachings. And as they talked about the Lord's Prayer, this phrase was added at the very end. And so there are people that have bickered and they've argued back and forth, should we pray this, should we not? I actually grew up praying this as a part of the Lord's Prayer, and it wasn't until fairly recently that I recognized and realized, oh, that's not there in the NIV. Where is that? I remember like flipping through the Bible and I was like, come on, I know it's in Matthew chapter 6. Where is it at? Is there a different, is it in Luke's version? Nope. It's not there either. It just doesn't exist in the NIV. It only really exists in the King James version of the Bible. It was something that occurred at the Didache, but then also in the second and third century, it started to come to a little bit more prominent usage as like this beautiful doxology that they would add to the end of the prayer. They thought that it was a weird thing. Some, some commentators have said they probably thought that it was a really weird thing that it ended with this idea of like, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And there's no amen and Jesus is telling us to pray this with no amen, and it just ends there? That's really abrupt. Like, there's no poetry behind that. There's no, there's no phrasing, and there's no song or beautiful language to this. It just ends. So they thought, oh, maybe what they've done is they've added this in. Like, the disciples were like, hey, that thing that Jesus prayed, let's add this too. 
Let's add this to it as well, because it's not only beautiful, but it calls back to David's prayer in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, where David says, yours, Lord, and, and this is like the end of his life, okay? David dies really shortly after this. He is about to install Solomon as king. So this is kind of like the last words of David, the last prayer of David. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. It's this beautiful phrase of David kind of saying all the things about God that he'd never quite gotten to say all at once. It's this moment of pure worship from David. He's just like, I, I, I want to let everyone in this kingdom know who God is and the power and the control and the love and the grace and the mercy that is in him because of his power. He gives and he gives and he gives and yet he rules and he reigns differently. He's not the king that we have come to expect, or even for David to say, he's not the king that I am. He's better. He's a better king than me. And, and everyone, everyone, everyone was waiting for the second coming of David. And David at this moment is saying like, no, no, no. God is so much better than me. God is so much greater than me. This is the finishing line, not only of David's life, but of this prayer, of this Lord's prayer that we've been walking through every single week, all summer long, that this is the finishing line. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It also echoes forward in time. To Paul, who in this beautiful hymn in Colossians chapter 1 says, For in him, I'm talking about Jesus now, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Power resides in the supremacy of Christ. In the supremacy of God, and it can be a little difficult for us, I think, to kind of understand this, to wrap our arms around this idea of a God who is supreme, a God who is ruler over all, a God who is and holds all the power in the universe, especially for us in this country and in this place who demand equality, right? We, we demand equality for others. We demand equality for ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But in this demand for equality, we miss and we misunderstand who this God who has all the power and the control really is. 
Because we want to pull God down to our level a lot of times. We want to pull him down to us and say, yes, yes, equality with, with God too. We've got all equality for everyone and everywhere, and we're going to pull this God down into this place with us too. But we don't realize and recognize that this God, much like David was trying to communicate, that this God is different from all of the other rulers and kings and presidents that we have ever had. That this God is not a God who wields his power irresponsibly. That this God is not a God who wields his power with an oppressive thumb. That this God is not a God who takes this power for himself in order to be exalted by all but a God that wants to see everyone loved, cared, respected for, and seen as equal. That God uses his power to make those things happen in our world and in our time. When we pray this prayer, when we sit in this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, we pray, as N.T. Wright says in his book, the Lord and his prayer. God's kingdom, God's power, and God's glory are what it's all about. It is the prayer that the alternative vision of reality may become not just a vision, but reality. It is the prayer that the baby in Bethlehem may be the reality of which the rulers of the world are the parody. The rulers of the world are not an example of God's rule. The rulers of the world are a parody, and oftentimes a bad parody at that. This is what David was getting at. In his prayer, as he is pouring out the extra bits of everything he needed everyone to know about who this God was, he's saying, I'm a parody of that. Y'all wanted a king, and you got Saul, and that didn't work out so well, and you were really frustrated, and then you got me, and you're like, hey, this is a little bit better. I'm a little bit better, but I still killed people. I still committed adultery. I, I, I still did bad, evil, horrible things. I'm a parody. No matter how good of a king, no matter how good of a ruler you get, I'm nothing but a parody. I am not what you need, what you hope for, what you desire, because God is that. It's not just a vision, but a reality. It is an alternative understanding of the world around us. Wright continues, and he says, to pray this prayer, to pray the Lord's prayer, is to pray that this kingdom this power and this glory may be seen in all the world. We must pray and work for the vision to come in reality. We cannot then pray this prayer and acquiesce in the power and glory of Caesar's kingdom. We can't acquiesce this power. We can't just say, ah, whatever. Ain't no thing. Whatever. Like, oh, if we get the right person in power, then everything changes. It's a parody. It's a parody. It's a parody. But it's not, a, it's not apart from working. 
we must pray and work for the vision to come in reality. That this Jesus who reigns supreme in all the world will come and change the world. That this Jesus will put the world back to rights. Make it the way that it was always supposed to be, where there is no more tears, there is no more enmity, there is no anger, there is no pain and sorrow and grief. There are no longer children in cages, and there are no longer storms that are massive taking over the Atlantic Ocean. Where these sorts of evil things do not occur time and again, but a place where all people are seen and loved where there is no racism, where there is no sexism, where there is no other ism, but every ism that is, is dismantled and taken apart and pulled apart, not just as a system, but pulled out from its root in a way and in a world that sees this God as king over all. This is not thoughts and prayers. This is action. This is taking action. This is stepping in to the action that must happen in this world around us. This is what the Lord's Prayer is calling out of us, calling us to be, calling us to do, and calling us to submit to, that we submit ourselves to the kingship to the lordship of this God, of this Jesus, who rules and reigns supreme. Wright continues in this section as well. Again, this is a fantastic book, by the way. If the church isn't prepared to subvert the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of God, the only honest thing would be to give, us, to give up praying this prayer altogether, especially its final doxology. If the church isn't prepared to subvert the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of God, <coughs> the only, <coughs> pardon me, the only honest thing would be to give up praying this prayer altogether, especially the final, <coughs> especially the final doxology. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So let it be. So let it be that Jesus reigns supreme, that God reigns supreme, that we find ourselves underneath the reign and the rule of Christ, of God here in this world, here in this place. You see, this prayer changes the way that we see and interact with the world around us. It changes things. We have seen that week in and week out. That our Father is this unifying force. Our Father is to say that this God is your Father and my Father. That we are in this thing together. It is automatically a unifying force. It is automatically something that brings equality and pulls us together underneath the Father, that we each are sons and daughters of God. 
hallowed be thy name. This God holds with him this beautiful and immense holiness that we can see and look upon his face and allow us to be transformed by his holiness as we sit and rest in that space. Thy kingdom come is a prayer of lament. It is a prayer of hope. It is a prayer of love poured out upon us that we lament that this world is not the way that it is supposed to be. Thy will be done. That we submit ourselves to God's will and God's order that we're relinquishing control of who we are and what we desire to see formed in this world and allow God's will to take place here on earth as it is in heaven. That God would reign supreme here as he does in heaven. That God would supply us with all of the things that we need, give us this day our daily bread, and that we would be proactive in our forgiveness and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation. Once again, we find ourselves submitting ourselves again to this God. Submitting, submitting, and allowing him to lead and to guide and direct us. To hold us by the hand and pull us around. And to show us the world that he is creating in our midst. Because he has all of the power. He has all of the glory. He has all of the rule and reign in this world and that he is doing something great and grand in our midst. You see, this Lord's Prayer is truly a revolutionary prayer. It is not this this beautiful prayer that we just recite ad nauseum. I I remember the first time that I, I, I may have really paid attention to this prayer and I thought that it was just really lovely and wonderful, it was at my cousin's wedding. And it wasn't because it was being spoken. I'd heard the prayer spoken my entire life. For the first time, I heard it in song. There's like this really old, terrible, nasty version called the Lord's Prayer, and it's a song. It's really gross, right? But she had it sung in her wedding, and I was like, oh, that's really bad. That's really bad. And I was probably in junior high when it happened. And I'm like, that's awful. That's not good. That sounds terrible, but I guess the lyrics are pretty, right? Like the Lord's Prayer is this thing that we have become desensitized to. That we've allowed the words and the phrases to just kind of be nice. And, you know, they're, they're really just wonderful and lovely and beautiful. And, oh, if I could just write that in a card for you here, right? They don't have this revolutionary sort of tone and tenor and power that they meant to be. Because you see, this prayer carries with it the inexplicable force of truth. This prayer carries within it this inexplicable force of truth. I'm stealing words from Walter Brueggemann who said this, that power is impinged upon by the inexplicable force of truth. That what we each have within us, this is his book, Truth Speaks to Power, which is really fantastic. So look through the Old Testament. 
Anyhow, Brueggemann is talking about how we all desire and want this power. But when we are confronted with the fact, when we are confronted with the truth that God reigns supreme, that God is actually the king, that our power is impinged upon, that the, inexpl the inexplicable force of this truth slams right into us. And we're like, oh, yeah, no, that doesn't work the way that I thought it would or should work. And all of a sudden, that force of truth pushes back and pushes back and pushes back because there's this reorientation that is taking place within this prayer. It is a reorientation to God as the power. It is a reorientation to God as the power and to Christ as the king. I'd be really curious to, to read a book that would take Naomi's work in the power and kind of flip it around and see what she might do with this. Because again, I'm telling you, it is so foreign to us in a democracy, in a, in a country like this, to be confounded or to be confronted with this idea of a God that rules over all. It's so vastly different when we have election cycles and different people coming in and out of power over and over and over again, 45 now, right? 45 different presidents over the course of a 200-plus year history. Like, it feels like, like oh, it, it's really hard to see, like, that my entire lifetime could have been underneath one king, right? That, that, that one person could have wielded all of the power. Or, or one family held all of the power ad nauseum for a, for, for a generation or two or three. This is such a foreign concept, such a foreign idea. But God's kingdom, but God's kingdom can be made visible and that we are the ones who can help pull back this curtain. I would love to see what it looked like for the church to begin to pull back the curtain just a little bit more just a little bit more to see the power of Christ revealed, not only in our midst as a people, but in this neighborhood. What would it look like for us to continue to peel back the curtain, just a little bit more of God's rule and reign in this place, that as we work for the goodness of God's kingdom to be made known, what that looks like here in this place. It's a call to dream. It's a call to imagine. It's a call to, to finally see ourselves as God's servants and God's children in a beautiful and wonderful way that allows us to do his will, to do his work, because thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Every week when we gather together, we started asking a couple of questions. What is God telling you right now? In the midst of this passage, in the midst of this phrase, as the, the tensions get fettered about us, as we, we, we pull back and forth on what it is that God is, God is kind of speaking to us about, what is it that God is telling you right now? now maybe take a moment and type that into your phone, into a note. I think this is actually what God is telling me. I think this is what God might be saying to me. And just type it out. Write it down on a piece of paper. What is that thing that God is telling you right now?
You're observing something, as Hannah walked us through last week, the learning circle, right? You're observing this kairos moment, this thing that is kind of like, like jetted into your life. It's like, oh, there's something different that's happening here. What is God saying to you right now? What are you observing? And then maybe as you reflect just a little bit, you, you move your way into a little bit of a plan. Like maybe this is what God wants me to do about it. Uh, this is what I'm going to do about this thing. And you write that down next to it. And then spend some time throughout the course of the week talking with someone about it. This is what I felt like God was saying to me. And this is kind of what I feel like God wants me to do about it. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not. Let's, let's discuss. Let's talk. Let's invite the Holy Spirit into this space, into this place. Let's, let's scour the scriptures together and see what it is that God might be trying to shape and build and mold here. So that we can do something different about it that we can elevate God's kingdom here in this place, in this time, as a people of love, as a people of grace. Because again, you will never walk alone unless you really, really want to. Unless you really want to. We have to take those steps towards one another. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.